morning, church. My name is uh, Brian. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Trinity. I know we have a lot of guests here, so welcome to Trinity City Church. Uh, kids are being dismissed right now for Children's Church, and a reminder to parents to pick them up either right before or right after you take uh, communion, although we're going to have child dedications right after the sermon, too, so if uh, you want your kids to be in uh, the service to see that, uh, you might want to get your kids right after the sermon instead. One of the things uh, that I like to highlight as they're heading on their way is what are they learning? And they're just shifting to a different unit, and right now they are highlighting a theme of repentance as they're looking at the scriptures and different stories uh, in the, the scriptures about that theme. And one of the key verses that they are looking at is Acts 3.19. Uh, so let's just uh, say Acts 3.19 uh, together out loud. Let's get that on the screen if we can, AV team. Uh, if there were, can we get uh, Acts 3.19 on the screen here? Uh, as they're pulling that up, one of the things I'll also highlight uh, for, uh, we'll get this in a minute, uh, for the guests is why did we do the scripture reading in a different language? And that's just a subtle way in our liturgy that we uh, just acknowledge the reality that the Christian faith is a global faith from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and that's why we often do our scripture reading in a different language. All right, repentance, Acts 3.19 says this, church, let's say it together. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So that is the type of theme that the, the kids are learning about right now. We are continuing our sermon series called Out of Context, and Out of Context is a sermon series where we look at uh, verses in the scriptures that are often taken out of context. And the, the goal of looking at these verses isn't to shame anybody or to make you hesitant about reading God's word to understand it, but really to put verses that are commonly out of context within their proper context in order uh, to see the full and rich and beautiful meaning that scripture has for them and also to give us all a reminder of proper ways of looking at scripture within the context that they are. So today's uh, scripture verse that we're going to look at, uh, at that's typically get taken out of context comes from John 14, and especially verses 13 through 14. Uh, but before we get to that, let's go ahead and pray uh, for our time here. Jesus, you said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we confess that, Lord. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And without the way, there is no going. And without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. You, Lord, are the way which we must follow, the truth which we must believe, the life for which we must hope. You are the only way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. You are the narrow way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. That's who you are, Lord. Now show us this way in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So here are the verses. They read this, 13 through 14. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's the teaching of Jesus. So, at face value, it says, ask Jesus for something, and he's going to give that to you, anything, anything you want. And there's similar verses like this throughout Scripture that sound very much like this that are often taken out of context as well. Another example would be Psalm 37.4, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So whatever you want, whatever's on your heart, just ask the Lord for it, and he's going to give you whatever you ask. And this is 
uh, a common way that these types of verses are understood. It's, it's an odd way to look at prayer. I had another pastor that uh, preached on Psalm 37 that said that often Christians take verses like this out of context and then treat God like he's a vending machine. You just have to put uh, some type of currency in them or say the magic word and then out pops the thing that you want. But you just have to ask a little bit of questions to see how, I guess, just how ridiculous this type of interpretation would be. Really anything? You can ask the Lord for anything and he's just going to give it to you. You just have to say the magic word in Jesus' name and he's just going to give you whatever you want. So you can ask for any type of, any amount of money, any amount of money, and now the Lord is going to give it to you. Any political outcome that you would like, you just have to ask, and then your side gets the victory. Can you call fire down from heaven to consume those that annoy you or you don't care so much about? Can we as a church, since we're having issues again with our HVAC, pray that the Lord would give us a brand new heating system before winter hits, and then we can just show up and that's what's going to appear? For those of you that are vegan, could you pray to the Lord that this whole congregation would become vegan like you and God would grant it to me? Because you would need the Lord to grant that to you. It would take the power that raised Jesus from the dead to get me to stop eating cheese, right? And so if you just prayed it, though, and you asked, does that mean the Lord will grant it to you? You can see when I asked this line of questioning, well, the verse can't possibly mean anything, right? That sounds crazy. So how do we understand that verse within context? And we're going to look at those verses again in context, and you'll note that this passage is structured around two questions that the disciples are asking Jesus. So let's look at the first question, question one. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? This question comes from the previous verses, verses two through four, and Jesus says that to his disciples, he's going to prepare a place in his father's house for them and for his people. This house is a heavenly house that is the real temple of God where God's presence dwells, and Jesus is saying that he is going to make a way, make a room for all of God's people in that real temple, in the real meeting place with God and his presence. So the focus here isn't so much on these new spectacular digs that you get in the new heaven and new earth. It's more about who is there and who you get to live with. It's not so much, man, this heavenly mansion is nicer than the ones on Summit Avenue, but wow, wow. We get to live with God forever. That's the place that God and Christ is preparing for us. So that's why Thomas asked the question. He wants to get more details. He doesn't fully understand, what are you teaching me, Jesus? What are you teaching us disciples? I'm, I'm confused. Give me more detail. And so here's how Jesus responds in 6 through 7. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That article means something. The way is different than saying a way. He's not an option among many. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no one, not one person, can go to the Father, that is, get to heaven, apart from Christ and Christ alone. This is a very gracious and loving thing to declare if it's true. 
Because it would make sense. If you knew the way to God, why would you point people to a different way? If you are the way, then you point people, in, in the case of Christ, to himself. Let's say you're on your hike. One trail leads to an outhouse by a swamp, and the other leads to a mountaintop lodge. And you want to point people to the mountaintop lodge. The loving and gracious thing to do is to give them the way to that place of glory and beauty. Not just to say, ah, take any way that you want. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that he is the way. And why is he the way? He says because he's the truth. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God because he and the Father are one. If you know Jesus, then you know God. If you've seen Jesus in the story of the Gospels, then you have seen God. And Jesus also says that he is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He was raised from the dead and gives his people eternal life. Though Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. And if you want to find the way to God, an everlasting life, in a response to a question like that, you don't want an opinion. You want the truth. You want the path, the way that gets you to God. And that's what Jesus gives them is that reality that leads to, leads to eternal life. So that was the first question that was asked in this text. But then we get to the second question, John 14, 8 through 11. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. I read Jesus' response to Philip, his question, Don't you know me, Philip? With a tinge of sadness in his voice. Because Jesus has been walking with his disciples and teaching his disciples, displaying the miracles of God in their midst, and they're still not getting it. They still don't know fully who Jesus is. And so Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me? They're looking for something, but they don't realize that it's standing right in front of them. It's like a one-sided relationship. You can think about it between like a friendship or maybe between spouses, parents, kids, whatever. But it's the situation where you're pouring your love and you're pouring your heart and you're pouring sacrifice upon sacrifice to someone you love. And they respond one day to say, I just want to experience love. And when you hear that and you've been the one that's been pouring it out and pouring it out and pouring it out, it just breaks your heart. You're just like, it's been in front of you. The love that you look for, the life that you look for, the truth that you're looking for, it's been here. It's right in front of you. And so that's why Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one that you're looking for. And his disciples don't quite get it yet. We often do that with Jesus. There are so many things in our heart that remain unsatisfied and restless and we keep trying to satisfy and that, that restlessness and other things when in reality what we're truly looking for is to find our rest in Jesus Christ. 
In Jesus, we find restoration, peace, and love. And he directs his disciples back to that truth. He says, look at who I am. Look at my words and look what I have done. That's what Jesus is teaching here in these verses. He says, Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. They are one. This is teaching that that is a part of the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus says that the words of Jesus are the words of God. The works of Jesus are the works of God because God the Father and God the Son, each person are united as God. And Jesus continues to teach in this section these realities, and that's where we get now to our verses that are often taken out of context. Look at, let's look at verses 12 to 14. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Verse 12 is key to kind of understanding these verses that are taken out of context. So what does Jesus mean when he says that his disciples will do even greater things? What does that mean? Are Christians going to be able to do more and greater supernatural works than Jesus? No, that's not likely. That's actually impossible. We're not divine. We can't do the same things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry and his death and resurrection. This isn't a teaching where Jesus is promising that we're going to heal more people than him or raise the dead or show up to wedding parties to turn water into wine whenever we want. That's not what the greater works are. The key to understanding what he means by these greater things is that it's occurring through the disciples because Jesus says, I am going to the Father. Did you notice that? You will do greater things because I am going to the Father. So these things are happening after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. So it's greater because they occur in light of the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit as the Lord expands his kingdom and his church to the ends of the earth. That's the greater thing that he is talking about. So in light of this gospel light and this gospel reality, Jesus says what he's going to accomplish through the power of the Holy Spirit in his church is these things. And then in light of that reality, he teaches, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So in light of this greater context, how do we understand that phrase? Ask whatever you want in my name, and I will give it to you. And the keys is not only to understand it in the context, is not the bigger story that this verse is found in, but also what he says immediately in these verses. He says that these things that we ask are for what purpose? Did you notice that in verse 13? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The things that we are asking are serving the purpose of the glory of God the Father in the Son. And the second clue on understanding this phrase, whatever you ask, is that we ask it in the name of Jesus. That's the second way to understand it. So what does that mean? It means at least a couple of things. One, when we pray in the name of Jesus, it's us acknowledging that the reason we can approach God in prayer is because he's prepared a way through his death and resurrection to do so. 
that Jesus prepared a way to God not only for us to be saved from our sins and reconciled to God, but also so that we can approach him in prayer. That's one of the things that it means to pray in the name of Jesus, is acknowledging that reality. But a second thing that it means to say a prayer in the name of Jesus is that you're praying in the name of Jesus is, is a way of saying that your prayers are in sync with the heart and will of Jesus. You're saying what I just said may be in sync with the heart and will of Jesus. All that my prayer is, may it stand in the name of Jesus and all that his name stands for. It's as if saying that may my words be as if Jesus prayed these words, that these would be the types of prayers that Jesus would pray. That's what it means to pray something in the name of Jesus. So in this context, this verse is not saying you ask for anything in your name according to your will that you get the desires of your heart to glorify yourself. That's how it's taken out of context. That's why we can start to understand why it would be ridiculous that it would be any amount of money, any political outcome, any type of prayer that he would have to just give it to you because often our prayers are according to our will in our name and for our glory. But the context of this verse says that God wants to give us good gifts in the name of Jesus for his glory and for his outcomes and for his will. That's the difference. But it's common to pray for our will to be done for our glory and our outcome to be the desire of our heart. Right now it's political season and, and, and uh, election season, and this pops up many examples at political rallies and other types of gatherings where people gather and they say a prayer. But often these prayers are not done in the name of Jesus, even though they might attach that to the end of the prayer. Often these prayers are for a specific partisan agenda in the name of that political party, even if they attach it in the name of Jesus at the end. See, that's the difference, and it's not just maybe political rallies that do this, but individual Christians, and we may personally do this a lot, that we say the types of prayers that actually don't reflect the words and work and will of Jesus Christ. So this raises a question, if you're following me so far. How do we avoid saying prayers like that? How, how do I stay focused on how to pray in Jesus' name, meaning according to his will and work and will? How do I do that? Well, fortunately, Jesus in the Gospels spends a lot of time teaching his disciples how to pray. Uh, one's response to a question, how do we pray, Lord, is found in Luke 11, where Jesus gives the framework of what we know as the Lord's Prayer, as a way to guide his people in prayer. And I have always, I've been a pastor, I pray, pray often, and been struggling to pray often, uh, just like any human being. And to this day, the Lord's Prayer is a faithful guide for a wandering mind that's thinking of all the tasks that I have to do today to stay focused for a short period of time to guide my heart through prayer according to the name and will of Jesus Christ. I've been recently been using this app uh, from uh, an Anglican church called uh, the Daily Prayer app. That's what it's named. And uh, at every time of prayer, morning prayer, evening prayer, uh, part of that time of prayer is they use the Lord's Prayer that you can say the Lord's Prayer word for word, especially if you don't know quite what to pray. But they often 
also use it as a guide for how to pray and the types of things you should pray about. So this is uh, how it would look on my app. This is uh, a couple phrases that they take from the Lord's Prayer and then encourages you to pause and to think about ways of praying. So the first uh, uh, part of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then you pause and you thank God for who he is and his abundant faithfulness. Then you move on to your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you pray for God's rule and reign to become a reality. I often pause at this point in the Lord's Prayer and think about all the prayer requests that people have asked me to pray for, the individuals and the things that they are dealing with and the, the challenges that they're facing. And I'm just, I just picture how, how it's God's will to, to stitch restoration and peace and forgiveness back into our lives. The Lord's Prayer goes on and says, give us today our daily bread, and we pause and pray for God's daily provision in our life and the life of others. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, and then you pause and you confess your sins to the Lord, and you pause and forgive the people that have wronged you, any type of bitterness or grudges that you hold, and you give that over to the Lord. It says, lead us not into temptation, and you pause and ask for God to guide you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Those things that continue to pull us to abandon the ways of God, we pray for the Lord to guide us off those paths. And this last phrase, deliver us from evil, where you pause and you pray for God's protection against any of the strategies of Satan. And then you wrap it up with the phrase, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. That exists because we often get off track. We often insert our will and our ways into our prayer. And so that's why Jesus spends a lot of time teaching his disciples how to pray. It's because it is a struggle. It is hard to know what to pray. And so he spends a lot of time uh, teaching his people how to pray. So if you struggle with prayer, you're in good company. And Jesus knows it. And he's gracious and kind to you. Not judgmental, but invites you again into prayer. And to sink our prayers more and more with God's word and God's will. It's why I often not only use the Lord's Prayer, but the Psalms and scriptures to guide my times of prayer, because I also struggle with focus in prayer. And I had this, this time, even just the other day, where I'm teaching a couple of my kids how to pray, because again, if they're like me, they struggle with knowing how to do it. And so we looked at Psalm 1 and just used phrases from Psalm 1 and turned them into short prayers before the Lord. It's another reason that I often purchase books of prayers, right? If you, if you struggle with prayer like, like I do, finding ways to guide your heart and your soul in prayer is always a good thing. One of, actually, I brought a book up here just to show you, a recent book that I uh, bought that has a bunch of different prayers, and it is called Living Room Liturgy. It's a great little prayer book that I have at home, and I've, I've copied, uh, for example, the, the pages on uh, what to pray before you eat, and uh, we'll often take out that sheet of paper uh, to help uh, me and my family to know what to pray before a meal. Because again, sometimes you don't know what to say. Or sometimes you just get in, get in, you say a quick prayer, right? And then the kids are like, man, you prayed very, very fast. You must be hungry, right? You just, those are the things that happen. So you often need uh, guidance in prayer. And this little book, like many other uh, uh, books of prayer, it just has 
different ways of, of praying. It has prayers for the gift of friendship. It has a prayer, prayer before reading the scriptures. It has a, a prayer for spiritual renewal and a, pray, a prayer for gardening. A prayer for, prayer for adopting a child. Prayer for baptism. These are just some examples I'm reading from the Table of Contents. You get the idea because every occasion could be a moment of just saying a five, ten second prayer in the name of Jesus, which means for the glory of God and according to his will. And those are the types of prayers, the prayers that are based in scripture, the prayers that are based in the global voice of the, the church, that Jesus hears those prayers and he will grant them. Jesus loves to respond to the prayer requests found in things like the Lord's Prayer. For his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for God's glory, for forgiveness of sins, Jesus grants that to you every time you ask. Isn't that such a beautiful thing to think about? That's why we pray, pray at least I do, prayer confession every single day. And every time I ask him for forgiveness, he gives it to me. It's his promise here. That's what he says, and I know that he will do that because he broke his body and shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So every single time you confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Lord loves to give us what we ask for when it's according to his will and in his word. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Can I get an amen on that? God is faithful to grant us what we ask for when we do so according to his will and in the name of Jesus. And even in your heart, I want to conclude with this, even in your heart, if you are just thinking, man, I just, I feel, I feel so bad at this. Like, I just, my problem is just like, I feel so guilty. Maybe, maybe I just like, maybe God just doesn't like it and I just don't know what to do and I need to help. You need to understand because of the gospel, there is so much grace and help when you approach the Lord in prayer. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment from your Father when you approach Him in prayer. If you bomb a prayer and it was one according to your will and not His, there's grace for that. He's not disappointed. He just says, come back. We'll, we'll keep the conversation going. We'll keep growing. We'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep sanctifying you according to my, to my will. I mean, even Romans 8.26 assumes that prayer is hard. Romans 8.26 says we don't know what we ought to pray for. That's in the scriptures. We don't know. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what to say. We, are, we need grace. We need help. And fortunately with prayer, when you, come, when you come to the Lord in prayer, every person of the Holy Trinity is there to help you. That's what the promises of God say about prayer. The scriptures say that God the Father knows what you need before you ask him. That's amazing. Before you even say it, he already knows what's inside and what you need. Before you even say it, God's word says that the Son, God the Son is the great high priest who's able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way as you have, but he is without sin. The Lord sympathizes with you. He, he gets it because he put on flesh, he experienced the, the suffering and the heartache and the temptations of the world. So even if you're facing something right now and you feel like every earthly relationship doesn't get it, God's word says approach the son in prayer because he gets it. He knows what you're going through and he knows how to take those groanings up to the Lord and God's throne 
to be answered according to his will. Or God's word says that, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. To finish out Romans 8, 26, it says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Every member of the Holy Trinity is participating in that moment to help you in prayer, to give you grace in that moment of prayer. I was reminded, this happened just yesterday, I, was, I, was, uh, I got the honor of officiating a wedding, and uh, one of the, the guys in the groom's party, um, as I was trying to gather them to, to walk out because uh, it was game time, it was time to go, the, the ceremony was ready to roll, and he goes, oh, that's the officiant, that's the, that's the pastor, that's the, that's the father. I'm not Catholic, but he called me the father. And he, he's like, that's, that's the person who talks to God for us. And like, usually I get, I get what he's saying. Like, it was said as a joke. And I, I mean, I really am sensitive, like, often, like, like, somebody says something to a Christian as a joke, and then they just, like, throw a big bucket of cold water on them, right? Be like, I'm going to the grocery store. Even just, like, normal things. I'm going to the grocery store with bread. And you're like, brother, let me tell you about the living bread, right? And you just start, you just have these, like, awkward pivots. But for some reason in that moment, right, I just, like, I knew he was joking, but I was just like, what if there was an element of truth in that, that he really thinks that he needs a religious person to be between him and God. And so I just, I couldn't help myself in that moment. I said, I, said, I, I, did, I did the Christian thing. I said, I said, you know what's truly amazing? You don't need me to talk to God. Anyone can do it. And I just left, that's it. I, don't, I usually don't, I usually can get a joke. But I've been meditating on this text all week. So I just couldn't help myself. That brother needed some good news maybe, right? Maybe he really thought that he needed me to talk to God. He was wrong. He didn't need me to talk to God. Anybody can do it because each member of the Trinity is there to help, to provide grace, and you can approach him in prayer. And when we approach him in prayer to ask for things according to his will and for his glory, Jesus is pleased to give us whatever we ask in his name. And that's the promise of that text in context.